Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the eighth episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is David Grau. David is the founder of FP Transitions, the leading marketplace for financial advisors looking to buy or sell financial advisory firms, in addition to a consultant on advisor mergers and acquisitions, succession planning, and valuations. In this episode, David shares his perspective on the four types of financial advisors, books, practices, businesses, and firms, advisory firm valuation trends, given that FP Transitions has done almost 9,000 valuations and facilitated over 1,500 purchase and sale transactions. Why a multiple of revenue sort of rule of thumb for valuation is actually a reasonable way to value a book, but a problematic way to value a practice or a business. And why paying revenue-based compensation to the advisors in your firm ultimately destroys your ability to create enterprise value as a business. We also talk quite a bit about David's two books, Succession Planning for Financial Advisors and Buying, Selling, and Valuing Financial Practices, both of which I've read and highly recommend. And you can find directly from our show notes for this eighth episode at kitsis.com slash eight. Be certain to listen to the end as well, where David discusses the problem with relying on your custodian or broker-dealer platform to find a seller for your business and why you should be especially cautious about using the company's standard selling agreement. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with David Grau. Welcome, David Grau, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have you joining us today. I've, I've kind of followed your work from afar for, I don't know, I, I guess I, almost as long as I've been in the business is... As long as I think you've been doing this as well, I uh, I started in the business in 2000, so I'm going 17 years, and you've been running this business of helping financial advisors buy and sell advisory firms, I guess a marketplace for them to meet each other for, for almost that long now, I think. So can you kind of share for our listeners uh, your business and what you do? Sure. Well, FP Transitions started out in 1998. A group of five of us got together and our goal was to use this new thing called the internet to help advisors meet each other and create a, a match, a method for buyers to find sellers and for sellers to find buyers. The, the model has evolved significantly since then, but at the time, that was the goal. So, so basically, we were going to become and were one of the earliest matchmaking services in the industry for buyers and sellers. And, and later, we added paperwork to it. So, I mean, this, like, I'm trying to think back. So, this was the era of like Match.com and eHarmony. So, like, so the vision was you, you wanted to be eHarmony for financial advisors buying and selling firms? We honestly did. And, you know, at the time, you know, back you think back to those <laughs> humble beginnings. There, there was an understanding that the independent industry uh, was obviously here to stay, but people began to, to ask good questions. So, um, 
if we have all these independent advisors who own what they've built, what did they do at the end of a career? So the thought was that there would be, and I'm sure you've read this and I've seen it many times too, there was going to be just this tsunami of advisors who needed to sell, who would need good buyers. And and simply matching them up made all the sense in the world. The like the Harry Dent age wave was supposed to plow through our industry and cause mass selling. And this will sound funny now, but I remember as we sat down as a group to to lay out the blueprints for what inevitably led into FP transitions. One of the guys said, "Well, this is internet based, so all you have to do is build it." And it will run itself, and we can all go back and do our day jobs. So all five of us said, we're in. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, you just like you just turn the website on and, and you let people buy and sell on your platform and, and then you go away. Like eBay had hardly any employees as well, right? You just you open the marketplace and you leave, you let it run. But sometimes I think if, if you really knew what you were getting into, you'd pause and, and have second or third or fourth thoughts. At the time, this sounded wonderful. Nobody knew any better. So so off we went and we gave it everything we had. And obviously, we had to make a few adjustments along the way. But but that's that's what we thought. So so when did you get started? When did the like when did the first site go live? The first site that went live that anybody saw that actually worked was late 1999. So wow. So it really was like the point I was coming to the industry. I can't even remember how I, I came across FP Transistor originally. That 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 really was the early days. So I, I remember at some point you had a couple of versions of this as well. Didn't like there was FP transitions and there was RIA transitions and like a couple of others. Co- correct. So um we, we still do all of those things. Back in the good old days, it was simpler because of regulatory issues, technology issues, to simply not ask an insurance agent or not ask an RIA to go through an insurance agent's form to fill it out and just fill out the parts that apply to you. So so we tried creating separate interfaces all under one company. And, and, the, and the problem with that was websites, well, if you, if you remember back to those days, you, know, you, you had to... They had to speak Netscape, AOL, Internet Explorer. I, I can't remember all of them, but but each one was you, you literally had to program the website in multiple languages. So when, if you have to have each one in four or five different languages, and you've got four or five websites, you need a full time IT staff to maintain it, and that was just not practical. So they got so they got consolidated down into this thing that we now call FP transitions. Correct. And, and we still work with RIAs and registered reps and independent insurance agents. But now one site can help identify who it is we're talking to and, and provide that user the correct interface and information that's pertinent to just them. We got good at it. So, so can you help me understand a little of just what that business, what that service looks like today? I mean, I suspect at least most people now have seen I guess Match.com or eBay or or even Amazon, like any number of businesses that do, we'll call it online marketplaces. So help help us understand what FP transitions looks like, because I, I as far as I know, I don't, I don't just 
I don't just go to the website and browse around and just get like match.com profiles when I go there and make a quick login. You got a little bit more involved. Yeah, so so here we are, almost 20 years old. We have we just hired our 39th staff member. So we've got a lot of people here and we've got a lot of different professionals. So we still help independent advisors who have a goal of how do I transfer ownership from my generation to the next? Except now, in addition to finding a match, which is what we call exit planning, we, we do succession planning, we do mergers, we do tax-free exchanges, we do continuity planning. We, we, we handle all the specific skill sets that go into that transition, law, taxes, regulatory compliance, cash flow analysis, compensation structuring, profit structuring, documentation, valuation, marketability. So, so we have different specialists who completely surround the advisor and, and depending on what their goal is, what they've built, how they've built it, how much time we have, we can help them lay out a plan of action specific for their needs and specific for the regulatory structure that they live in. And we've gotten quite good at it. But you're still, I don't mean this negatively, but you're, so you're still built primarily around leading up to either valuations or transactions. This isn't meant to be broad-based practice management consulting. Is that correct? We're definitely not a coach. And we're very, we always say that to our clients. We assume you're not hiring us to motivate you. So, so, so we're definitely not in that business. So some folks will look at us and, and call us a consultant, but you know we've got half a dozen lawyers here. We have cash flow analysts. We have compensation specialists. We have folks that will come inside of your entity structure and, and, and literally just rebuild the entire structure so that it's designed to last for 40 or 50 years. I, I don't know any consultants who do all the things that we do, so... I'm not even sure I'm comfortable with that word. I, I think we're kind of a one-of-a-kind model, and depending on what the client needs, the one thing we never wanted to be was succession planning in a box. We do not do that. No, no, you know, static solutions up on the shelves for every client, and and we don't expect the clients to fit in, you know, th through every you know square peg and a round hole kind of thing. We custom build and design the plans. And, and we work with about 2,000 clients a year. That's why we have 40 people. I was going to ask, so how many, how many firms are you typically involved with through the year between? So I guess there are valuation services, there's actual marketplace transactions you support, internal succession plans, I guess you help do valuation and crafting the structure of the plan. So like what's sort of the split across those in, in terms of the kind of activity that you guys are, are typically engaged in? Valuation is probably our single most popular item. Everybody likes to know what they're worth, right? Yes. You know, not only what are they worth, but a lot of other questions come out of the valuation process, kind of liken it to the annual physical. And it, it gives the doctor all the baseline measurements. So the client comes in and wants to be told they're fine, you know, go home. But but from the doctor's point of view, you start to amass uh, all the underlying measurements and data points. So when we know all those things, we can actually offer good advice without all of those input 
pieces of data, the output would be you know useless to us. It's interesting to the client, but but the client usually is saying, well, how much value have I built? But that's followed up real quickly by, and what do I do with it? How do I protect it? Um, will, will anybody really buy it? Would my son or my daughter or my key employees be interested? So, so the questions that follow, it isn't the value that really makes the difference. It's all of the other hundred pieces of information that they give us and share with us. And so how much activity do you see between the, the channels, between RIAs, the broker-dealers, the insurance agents, because you're, you're, you're working across all of them? Are, are, are one of those more dominant than others, or, or are they differently focused? I don't know, like RIAs are doing a lot of internal succession plans, but insurance agencies just want a you know, quick marketplace transaction. There is a pretty big difference in, in our own staffing level. We've begun to have people who specialize in ins- independent insurance support, who specialize for RIAs, and those who specialize for registered reps. We, we certainly see you know, some crossover between a registered rep and an RIA or an IAR. Don't see a whole lot of crossover into the independent insurance sector yet. But, but I think that's changing. We're, we, we're just starting to see the insurance folks who, I'll say this in a nice way, in, in terms of valuation, practice management's the wrong word, succession planning, exit planning, building sustainability. So, so the independent insurance agents are 10 to 15 years behind it's just never been an issue for them. They've they've had a you know a, a very strong mothership to rely on. Well, and the businesses the businesses just never grow the same way, right? I mean, you you when I mean, this is what struck me because I I started in the insurance side of the business, and then I spent some time in the IBD channel before I ultimately landed at an RIA, and and I still remember. I mean, the the driving difference across them just just from the business perspective to me was that you know, the the Insurance business is a transactional business. You know, granted, some types of coverage give you some trails, but nominally speaking, like you, you wake up on January first. No matter how good you were last year, your income is zero. So you get your backside out there, and and you meet some people, and you do some business. And because of that, you 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 can only ever build your your business and your infrastructure so large. Because a, you're always con- you know, you've got all the more you hire, the more malice you have to feed. So it becomes kind of terrifying, and because you're only as good as what you did, you know, in in the in the current or upcoming year, you know, at some point, just there's so much pressure that you create for yourself with more staff that it's just easier to be to be lean. And when you flip over to the RIA side, or really just the AUM model, but the the RAs kind of embody it. You get to a point where, after you've been doing it for a couple of years, you wake up on January first and you look and say, "Wow, I've got seventy five clients that have a million dollars each, or whatever my number is. I got seventy five million dollars under management, is six or seven hundred thousand dollars of revenue, and and all I have to do is give them good service, and all the revenue stays and." 
you know, it's pretty easy to start seeing like, wow, if all I had to do to keep $750,000 of revenue was hire some really awesome service people to service the bejesus out of my clients, it gets really, really easy to start justifying a lot of hiring <laughs> because there's a revenue to pay for it and a natural profit margin. And, you know, the truth is it, it, it costs less to get good service people than it does to get new salespeople that bring in business. And so the, the, the math just works. And then the businesses start getting bigger. And, and I mean, you just, you look back over the 15 years of the RA movement. And, and to me, that's, that's what's happened. They just accrue bigger because recurring revenue that can be supported by service staff is an amazingly robust model at the end of the day. But, but one of the things I, th- I think that we, we could say that it is a common thread between the registered reps, the RIAs, the IAR hybrid model, and, and the independent insurance agents, Michael, is that once these folks go through the process of, of obtaining a formal valuation and, and they spend an entire Saturday, some cold January or February, inputting all of the data we need to do a good job on the outputs, when we give them the, the results and they look at that number, many of them for the first time in their life, they're all struck with a kind of a common understanding or result. This small practice that I own is the single largest, most valuable asset I own, and I better do something with it besides going to work on Monday. But what is it? And and that's the dialogue that begins to start. And that's why it's so important that you know, we, we do a thousand plus valuations a year. That's what begins the dialogue. Well, and, and it, it strikes me. So when you look at the management of, say, a large business, particularly a publicly traded company. So th- there's, there's a natural feedback mechanism when you're the owner and leader of a publicly traded business, which is every possible bit of information about what you're doing, how you're running a business and its trajectory is factored into your stock price. And it, 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 to me, it's the, it's the purest form of the ultimate key performance indicator, the ultimate KPI metric about how you're doing and building and executing your business. And the challenge in small and closely held businesses in general, and I think certainly for the advisory world in particular, is that because historically most people didn't do valuations, didn't even have a good affordable means to get a valuation, they never had perspective on there's no feedback system to let them know you are doing the things that actually make a business more valuable as a business. And otherwise, we just got to get caught up in whatever gives me current income or whatever, you know, gives me less pain or, you know, all the all the things that you that we normally react to in our day to day lives when there's no other feedback or guidance. And and just the idea of of, you know, stop saying like, I'm going to stop running my business by just reacting to problems or doing what feels right at a gut level, which may or may not be right in the long run, I'm going to actually get a valuation with an objective marketplace feedback of whether the things I'm doing actually enhance the value of my business in the long run. And and I think in the truest sense, like when you change the way you measure the outcome, you'll start changing your own behavior in hopefully positive ways, at least if your goal is to enhance the long-term value of your business. Well, and, and ultimately, Michael, that's why we wrote and published our last two books. You know, we, we, we would, we've done now, uh, gosh, upwards of 8,500 formal valuations. So, so the clients would 
ask the questions as they should. What's next? What should I do with this? What can I do? What what am I not understanding? So the first book we wrote was Succession Planning, Building an Enduring Business. So that was all about sustainability. Do you want, are you capable of building something that will still be here 30 years from now? Our second book was kind of, we call them the bookends. Our second book was sell it, merge it, move on. So those are the folks that, for whatever reason, aren't interested in building something that's still around in 30 years, but they do want to monetize what they've built. They want to make sure that they take their clients and put them in the hands of somebody who's at least as good as as they are as a seller. So we, we gave people real clear choices and then said, okay, with those two choices, which intrigues you the most? There's still a hundred possibilities with each one, but which one? Are, are you a builder? Would you rather just sell it and monetize your value and go do something else? Those are both perfectly good answers, but when you have a valuation in your hand to start the, the exploration process, I, I think you look at the answers with a completely different set of glasses, and I think that's important for our industry. So, can you give us a little bit of context about h- how you came to this path? I mean, you, you you started a tech company in 1999. So, did you have a tech company background? Did you have a practice management consulting background? Like, how, how did you actually come to the table as a, a tech entrepreneur for the financial advisor world? My, Michael, if my staff could hear that question, they would all be nervously giggling right now because I am the least tech person you'll probably ever meet. I, I can barely turn the computers on in the morning. But but that's okay. I have lots of really smart people around me. And I learned a long time ago, surround yourself with good people and they'll take care of you. So I started in, in all of all places as a regulator. So after I finished law school, I had, I had worked about between uh, undergrad and, and law school, I worked about nine years straight, 100, 110 hour work weeks. I was tired. Uh, I, I barely even knew my family. I had uh, two small children at the time. So somebody said, listen, the, the perfect place for you, go to work for the state government. You won't work that hard. You'll have nights and weekends free. And you know, I want to learn something about securities law because I, I just always was fascinated with that. I, I knew some former regulators, and they said, we'll, we'll get you right in, stay for two years, and then make a decision. So I did. I, I became a regulator. I took my bar, passed my bar on the first try, and I went to work as a regulator for two years. And In, in what area? Like in securities regulation? In securities regulation, yeah. I did six months stint, a little bit in licensing, a little bit in securities like regulation like Reg D and performance and prospectuses. And then I, I spent the last year in enforcement. Wow. And was that in a state securities department or were you were you federally with SEC or FINRA? Or- so so I, I worked for the, the Oregon Securities Division. And at the time, I was, at least for a short time, I was the state's liaison to what was the NASD office up in Seattle. Okay. So FINRA's predecessor. But Michael, I went into work. The, the it was like almost really the first day, and, and the oddest thing happened. That you know, you, you look back on these things and you go, you wonder, wonder if that wouldn't have happened. But I sat down, and and somebody 
put this file in front of me and they said, you're the rookie, you get, to, you get the low ball assignments. And your assignment is to write a set of transition rules for this new group of advisors called independents. So, and, and I, you know, at the time I, you know, I didn't know how to, what all those words meant. So I, I asked a lot of questions and I said, transition, you mean like buying and selling? And they said, yes. And I said, so we don't have anything in our statutes about independence. And they said, no, they don't need anything special. They're just like wirehouse reps. <laughs> and I thought, huh. So I, I, I never forgot that. But from a regulator's point of view, they're all the same. You know, they're the securities license, you know, 76365, and we regulate them, we license them. So they all paid the same fee. I, I could see from a regulator's point, they were all the same thing. So, so I sat down and I had to learn how to do transition rules. And I took that with me when I left the state a couple of years later. I went out into the world and hung out my shingle as a lawyer. I had an instant RIA law practice. And I, I literally wrote a letter to every RIA in, in the Oregon and Southwest Washington area and, and said, listen, if you need help, I'm a lawyer. I'm not very expensive. I know the rules and the regulations. At a former regulator, call me if I could be of help. And, and I put my business card in there. This was back in the days of a, of a dot matrix printer. So it took me about two weeks just to print the letters off. I had a 50% response rate to my letter. And you were and you were contacting them about things related to transition planning in particular, or just any like just anything. L lawyer for hire got a legal problem or question about your RIA. Call me. That that's it, Michael. Perfect. So and you know, I mean, I'm I'm a relatively new young lawyer, but I was hungry, and and I I knew the rules, and I was I was pretty good at what I did. So I had a huge response to my letter. And, and my, pl my plan was I was going to help them set up their entities. I was going to help them build businesses. When the time came, of course, I would help them sell those businesses. What I didn't realize was that even back then, given the relatively high average age in the industry and without any other choices, I got a lot of calls from people who said, you know, David, I, I've been thinking – this has been on my mind now for a couple of years. I'm 63. I've got 75 million in assets under management, 50 some great clients. If I were to sell it, do you suppose anybody would pay me any money for it? And this, and, and I mean, at the time, this would have been like an independent RA advisor with $12 million under management. It's like, I mean, were they mostly very small at that point? 50, 50 to 75 million would have been real typical. Okay. At least the ones that yeah. I worked with. Okay, so that's a that's a good size. Yeah. See, so, so you look at that, and I, uh, you know, I said, well, I I do know that we have rules in place that allow you to do this. Not many people do it, but I think it's possible. Because I guess at the, at the time, I mean, literally, the idea of can you sell this investment advisor registration? And the entity and the client contracts with it, like that was actually kind of a novel legal question. <laughs> it, wa it was a novel legal question. But I, I had the advantage. I had a, um, as a mentor, I had this really nice guy, a senior attorney with a, a JD, CPA, LLM. And, and he always taught me to, to think the other way. And he said, if there's not a clear rule that says you can't do it, 
Your job as an attorney is to help them figure out how to do it. So I, I started realizing that, you know, that, that was the secret sauce. I can help you do this. I don't know how, but I will figure it out. We're, we're going to do it. And, and I was selling these things. I mean, nobody who called me went unpurchased. We found buyers left and right. That was easy. The hard part was the deal structure and the valuation. So, so nobody back then really knew how to do that. You know, we started out with nothing down, 10-year earnout arrangements. But, you know, after a while, you go, okay, there are an awful lot of buyers. Every time I let them know that we've got this opportunity, maybe that's not the right price. Maybe those aren't the right terms. So, so little by little, that kind of wound its way into the genesis for FP transitions. So this idea of, okay, all the... There are clearly some sellers who want to sell. There are some, there's no lack of buyers even then for people who want to buy. So let's be a matchmaker and we'll help them figure out deal terms and valuation because that's a, a vital function for that, that some middleman needs to play. And, and, and that was the business. That was the deal. Yeah. And then we created the first iteration of what would someday become FP transitions. We, we started with five owners. That was crazy when you think back on it, but that's what we did. And, and I must where did, give, where did they all come from? Were these all just people you knew that had some part, some some expertise to bring to the table? In all humility, I will have to give credit to to other guys. I was actually the last guy on the team, so I, I contributed the legal and the regulatory expertise. We had a CPA on the team, we had a marketing sales guy on the team. We had a website builder on the team. We, we had all the tools. I'm not, I'm not sure we had a real good long-term strategy. We, we had to figure that out. But we, we, we had a lot of energy and we had, you know, like I said, we, we're going to build this website and let it run itself. So, so, you know, as a new, young, small business, we probably made every mistake in the book. But here we are 20 years later. So if, if you adapt and adjust, it's just proof that you can figure your way through it, I guess. So you now have about almost 20 years under your belt of watching these dynamics. I mean, I, you know, this has certainly been the rise of kind of the professionally managed advisory firm and, and building and selling businesses for value. So I feel like you, you've probably been closer to the heartbeat of advisor M&A trends over the past 20 years as, as pretty much anyone in the business. So I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, like how – What's changed? What stayed the same over the past 20 years? We thought, as, as I said earlier, that there was going to be this tsunami of sellers. That was wrong. What we've learned over the course of time is that about one in 10 advisors sells their practice and, and moves on. So, so that is not the first choice on the way out the door. So that's one thing we learned. Second, sustainability, durability. Those are important words, and they're powerful words, but, but let's be clear. Independent advisors have an Achilles heel, and that heel is they don't build something that will outlast them. Most of the industry are, are built up of, I call them books, small practices, and they revolve around a force of one. You might have some, some staff members on board. But if we lose our, our central advisor, 
the clients will, will quickly dissipate and go someplace else. Everything revolves around one individual. And when they retire, die, or become disabled, it's over. So, so these, these models are extremely perishable on the one hand, but they're extremely valuable on the other. They make a great income, and, 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 it's, and it's more than that. You know, most of these, at least the fee-based models, they, they have a good, strong, sustainable top-line growth rate. They have predictable recurring income. And, and everybody says, yeah, 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 I get that. But, but what they don't understand is that predictable fee-based income also tends to create predictable overhead structures. And what that means is you can begin to create a very good, strong profit line, and it's predictable. And the reason that that matters is we're trying to get next generation advisors to buy into these models and invest their money and their careers to build on top of the first generation practice model. You need growth. You need profitability. You need good compensation. And, and these fee-only registered rep or RIA models, and, and now lately, even the independent insurance that are headed that direction, they create these things inside the structure. They are built and can be easily, well, I'll say easily, but you put enough effort into it and you start soon enough, you can build a multi-owner, multi-generational business out of just about any practice out there if you know to ask the questions and to start learning the lessons soon enough. So what are, what are the, I mean, what are the lessons? I mean, what, what is it that in your mind that defines that, that difference or that transition from books to businesses? We, we break the industry down into four distinct sectors. Those who own books, those who own practices, those who own businesses, and those who own firms. And, and, and we don't use the terms interchangeably. So when, when, when I say book or I say practice, I mean something very specifically. Anyone in the audience listening, if, if you want to learn more, we, we covered these, these definitions in both of our books. And, and, I, and I think if, if you understand what they are and how they apply to you, it, it changes everything. And the basic rule is this, what you've built and how you've built it will determine how you value it, how you transfer it, how you build a durable model out of it. So let's, let's start with the basics, those who own a book. So a book is obviously, it, it's, it's smaller, but that's not the point. Structurally, most books are, are sole proprietors or sole practitioners. Uh, a book tends not to get above about 250000 in revenue. They don't have much, if any, infrastructure. A, a book owner which I think describes about 70% of the independent financial service providers is, is the, is the essence of independence. Be your own boss, have your own, be your own boss, do your own thing, work with, work with who you want, do what you want for them within regulatory constraints. No, no employees, no, no burdens, just you're your own boss, do your thing. Perfectly said, Michael. I mean, you get to make as much money as you want. You can work as hard as you want or not. So, so there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's just that because there's no, it, it all revolves around one person. It's, it's very perishable. A practice next level up. 
And, and so, so we'll not put dollar signs with it because that's not a good way to describe it. But, but structural elements are a good way to describe the differences. So a practice will almost always be centered around an entity. An S-corp or an LLC would be the common means. A practice will typically have one shareholder of that S-corporation. Uh, a practice can be worth millions and millions of dollars. And, and usually there's a staff. They've signed a lease. They've built an infrastructure. They have computers and a phone system and a copier. They, they've, you know, they've been doing this for 15, 20 years, and they're pretty good at it. But everything still revolves around what we call a, a strongly held model. Advisor, owner of the practice, I, I might have a lease and office space and a couple of staff and some infrastructure, but, but they're my clients. I work with them. I see them. Maybe you can occasionally call them about a service issue or help with some behind the scenes work or sit in on a meeting. But, it, you know, it's my practice and they're my clients. Yeah, they, exactly. And but what's interesting is, you know, we do a lot of valuation work on practices and we'll, we'll, we'll turn the first valuation draft around and, and it'll come out to three and a half million dollars. And you say, oh, now, wait a minute. How does of one owner S corporation possibly serve that many clients and generate that kind of value? You know, you'd have to be somewhere in the million and a half to to two million dollars worth of gross revenue. That's a lot of money. How do you do it? So, so what typically happens is that practice owners surround themselves with book builders, and and when they turn the valuation inputs in to us for our opinion, they include in it all of the production of the book builders. So, so one of the things we learned that, that helps us work with book builders and practice owners who want to grow into business owners is we've, we've become very good at spotting what we call fracture lines. And the fracture lines mean that that book builder, not that they would, but they could pick up and walk across the street at some point in their career and 75 to 85% of those clients, maybe all of them, will follow. So, so they don't own any shares in the S-Corp, but they do own something. They are building a book. Well, they, they, own the, they, this is the emphasis, they own the client relationship, right? They're the ones that see the clients and work with the clients. They own the client relationship. So, so a long time ago, we, we started differentiating between those who wanted to build a book and those who wanted to build a business, huge difference. And, 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 you know, the practice owners, I think, do themselves a disservice. And, and it makes it very difficult to plan when they convince themselves that good cash flow and a satisfying life means I've taken care of my clients. No, you've taken care of your family. But, but you, you still have that Achilles heel. If something happens to our practice owner, that model is gone. There is no succession plan in place. There could be, but they haven't begun to work at it. And they've built a practice and a group of books. And a practice and a group of books added together do not equal a business, no matter how big the dollar signs get. It's structure. And there's no structure that's durable or sustainable in a typical practice model. Well, and it, and it strikes me, I mean, even when you look at it in the aggregate, like a practice owner that that brings a bunch of advisors, quote unquote, on board, hey, you can run your books of business under my platform. 
like I, I've watched so many advisors do this for a long time and, and you know, I, I say them sort of half joking, half seriously, like you're reinventing the broker dealer model. You're reinventing what your parent company does. Your your parent company is a platform that has a whole bunch of advisors on the platform, each of whom own their own independent books, but use the platform. And the platform takes a slice of the revenue as an override, and that's what you're usually doing for the for the books that are downstream. And you know you can you can make some decent cash flow off of it, but you know look at what your ultimate fate ultimate fate is. Broker dealers struggle to get sold for one times revenue. Many of the big ones lately in public news have gone for less. They couldn't even get one year's trailing revenue, and they're and they're struggling with you know mid single digit profit margins, even at sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars of scale on up. All because at the end of the day, like it's a very it's a very commoditized business that's difficult to create much enterprise value because you you don't own the client relationship. The 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 all those independent book owners are the ones that control the client relationships, and at the end of the day, kind of control the lion's share of the actual value creation in the in the process. But but you know, it, it took a long time. And, and a lot of valuation data to learn these things and begin to be able to spot them and then to begin to create solutions for them. So, but, but we have. So we think that practices are about 25% of the industry. So, so think about what we've just said so far. Let's summarize this. Books and practices are one owner models that are not built to be sustainable. Basically, they die at the end of an advisor's career, and we just described 95% of the independent space. Now, that's scary, but that's also, you know, Michael, early on, you asked me, you know, t- tell us about FP Transitions itself and what it does. That's one of the things that we have simply made as our mission, that we want to change that. So e- either more of these folks need to sell to a bigger business that is durable and sustainable, or we need to convert more and more of these practice models into businesses so that they can serve the children and grandchildren of their current clients and have a multi-generational model. That's what we're doing. So so if the book is the individual advisor with, with basically no infrastructure that just does their thing for their book of clients and that's that, and a practice says, all right, it's still kind of built around me. I've got some staff and some infrastructure and maybe an office space with some lease and a couple of people that are supporting. So I can get a little bigger because I'm not just constrained to my hours of the day. At least I've got some people's support. But but you still cap out. So I'm 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 curious then how how you define the the next level, which I guess in the sequence is is from the practice to the business and 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 how you define the distinction between a practice that has a bunch of advisors, which you're calling books tucked, um, tucked up under the practice, versus a multi-advisor business. Yeah, th- thank you for that segue. So I think the biggest um, single issue that we can we will spot that creates a difference between a practice and a business is compensation. So, so as and again, th- this is what comes out of the valuation process. You know, to the, to the client, they like the, the dollar sign and the big number in bold print on page five of our valuation. 
to, to us, it's the PLs, the balance sheets, 10 pages of input data, an interview to learn more about them. And what we have learned is this. What really creates a business are, are just a handful of things. Let's start with compensation, though. First of all, practices tend to be eat what you kill, revenue splits, revenue sharing models. A business will move to a very formal W-2 base salary structure. And there may, be some, there may be some variable comp on top of that, a bonus, or, or even a little bit of eat what you kill, but it's not the predominant method of compensation. That's a big deal because, as I said earlier, especially these fee-based models, they tend to have good, strong, sustainable growth rates. They have predictable revenue. They have predictable overhead structures and relatively low overhead structures compared to the, the world of law or accounting. But the bottom line, and it literally is the bottom line, when you have a correct compensation structure, you will have profits, profitability. And what we've learned is this. Businesses are built with a bottom line in mind. In other words, they literally are about the earnings. So when you look at a book or a practice, those are typically are valued top line of the P&L looking down. Businesses and firms are bottom line looking up. It's a different approach. It's a different valuation methodology. Everything is, is unique because of the profitability. But it's even more than that. Businesses, they have a strong organizational structure where the goal is enterprise strength. Of course, revenue strength matters, but there has to be a balance between the two. Businesses will have an entity. Our definition of a business is that it has to have at least two owners and at least two generations of ownership. That's not hard. And that's, that's not describing a company of 25 or 30 people. That's a father and a son, a mother and a I was going to say that could, that, that could be a father and a son and one or two staff members with an entity. So, but, 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 but the key is we, we, we need W-2 comp, not 1099. We need, to, we need to start getting away from eat what you kill and, and get into scalable, profitable growth. The goal for most of our, our business owners is that they're going to bring at least 30%, 3-0% of gross revenue to the bottom line and, and disperse it from there as a profit distribution to those who take the risk of ownership. Now we're talking next generation. 30%, people look at that and go, well, how is that possible? We do it all the time. And, and, and all the credit goes to the independent advisors out there. When you, when you have a fee-based model with re repetitive, predictable income, and it grows in, in the 7 to 10% a year top line range, and you create scale through the right compensation system, because of the relatively low overhead in this industry, at least compared to other professional service industries, a practice, a big practice that is evolving into a business can bring 30, sometimes even 40% to the bottom line. And, and Michael, here's the point. Why, why does profit matter? It matters if you're an investor. In other words, if you're a next generation advisor who says, it's time to make a choice. I've got my own book. Do I want to go across the street and build my own practice, maybe a business? Or would I be smarter buying into the existing owner's business and using the money that flows through it to help fuel my ambitions? Let's, let's build a, a second generation on top of a founding levels 
platform. Is that smarter? And, and we help them answer that question. But I'll answer it real succinctly for you. If, if you're 30-something years old and you have an opportunity to make an investment with a 30% ROI and you have a good paycheck and it comes with a mentor, you, you look at that package and, and you go, gosh, I wish I would have had that opportunity when I was in my 30s. This generation does. And, and they're smart. They're, they're looking at that and they're saying yes when they're asked. I'm struck by your comments about compensation because I feel like there are a lot of advisory firms out there that would call themselves businesses and have multiple owners and pretty much all the other things that you described there. But I feel like it's still a, an industry standard, even in large independent RA businesses, that advisors are compensated based on the revenue that they're responsible for. Even if it's not necessarily an, an eat what you kill kind of thing, because uh, maybe the firm generates the revenue or the senior partners generate the revenue, bring in the clients and hand them down. But that you know the the advisor who manages a uh, hundred million dollars and a million dollars of revenue for clients gets paid a much bigger number than the advisor that only generates three or four or five hundred thousand dollars of of revenue or is only responsible for. A couple hundred thousand dollars of revenue. So, I, I don't. Know, can you can you can you talk about that more? I mean, I, I'm I'm imagining a lot of firm owners that are probably saying something themselves like, "David, no offense, but you're nuts. If I take my advisors and I turn them in and I and I pay them a salary, they're going to leave, and they're going to leave and take the clients. <laughs> they're supposed to be the the value of the firm. It's like, yeah." You know, if I do what you say, I'm going to blow up my business. Michael, that would not be the first time I've, I've heard that. So, so let, me, let me respond. So in our industry right now, whether you're building a book or a practice or a business or a firm, most owners have one primary tool with which to reward a producer, compensation. So if, if, if it's the only tool in the toolbox, you have to solve all the problems with comp. So yes, in that case, comp does have to be high. And, and that's why people have gravitated towards the revenue split. So in other words, how do I get somebody to act and think and produce like an owner? Ah, I know. I'll pay them like an owner. But, but here's the problem. And I, I'm an English major, but, but, I, but I love to say, do the math. So let's say you've got an RIA with, well, that's probably, you know, a hybrid model. That's a better model. That'll apply to more of our listeners. You've got a hybrid model, typically overhead, not including owner's comp, about 35 to 40%. So, so the way you're going to, to reach really strong, sustainable growth, you're going to give your producers a 50% payout. And we, we hear this all the time. And just think of how many reps I can get on at that payout, and then my revenue will be huge. Yeah. So, so, so we say, okay, but, but, but think about this. Just do the math with us. So, so this person produces half a million dollars a year. They take 250,000 of it. Well, you get 250,000. Well, that's nice. That's a lot of good cash flow. Except uh, out of your half, you have to pay all the overhead. So, so basically you get what's left. Now, if I look at those two sides of the equation, I would rather have what the book owner has. Yeah, the the why why would I 
I've already got the 250000 with no responsibility, aside from serving the clients. Why would I want yours 50000 that has all of the expenses in the management crap? Yep. And, and you know, and we say the same thing. I mean, they, they don't worry about payroll. They don't sign a lease. They, they, you know, they come and work when they want to. If they want to take a month off, they take a month off. Owner's side or the founder's side, they've got all the responsibilities, some of the liability. They, they've got all the overhead structures. And, and then they get what's left over. And let's take it one step further. The book builder also does have value, right? Because if they're the only ones talking to these clients, they're building a book right underneath your roof. And that's what we call fracture lines. So they get most of the money. They get none of the expenses. They get all of the equity. So so the founder who's saying, well... Well, they, all right, I got to pause there and ask. You said like they get all the equity, except... So this is kind of the dynamic... They get all the equity, except they don't actually have any of the equity, except they really do. Well, the, the equity in the book. Yeah, because that, that book is perishable and that book will walk across the street. Because I feel like that's this thing like, right, I own the firm, the client signed the paperwork to my firm, the servicing advisor may have a book and, you know, gets a 50% payout on it. But, you know, the, the clients are signed with me and I own 100% of the equity. Ha 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 ha. I'm going to run all the way to the bank. That's a painful distinction to actually say as someone, well, no, you really don't actually have the equity in all those client books. No, but 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 that you know, let, let's make that the point. Equity. So so our argument is is let's put equity into play. How do you motivate somebody to work hard, to produce a lot, to think like an owner? So in our models, and, and one of the things that is one of the, the difference makers between a business and a practice is that the owners and the producers are typically one and the same. Our producers are rewarded both with compensation and with equity. So in other words, they become shareholders in that S-Corp or that LLC. And, and what people don't understand, and, and, and they really do need to just do the math and compare the models and look 10 years out. When when you have W-2 comp plus some variable plus equity, and think about what equity means in a fast-growing, profitable S-corp or LLC. It means that owner now has at least three ways to build wealth. One, compensation. They've always had that. They still have it. But But now, instead of that being the only tool, that's that's almost the worst tool. Ordinary income tax rates, and, and it's like riding a bike. You stop pedaling, it falls over. We're going to add to that the, the, the benefits of equity, which are twofold. One, profit distributions. Now you have a separate second stream of income that comes in that augments your compensation. And remember, compensation is really what you do. It's wages for your work. Profits... That's the benefit of being a shareholder and building something bigger than you. But but there's one more thing that people always overlook, and that's the value of your ownership. So so think about that. If you, if you're a twenty percent owner in an S corp worth three million dollars, you've got six hundred thousand dollars worth of value in your stock. It's protected internally with a shareholders agreement. But but you're you know let's say you're you know you're forty years old. You got a 20 to 25 year runway still left. This thing's growing. Let's just say, you know, average of 7% a year top line. 
So what happens over the next 20 years? Well, your $600,000 worth of stock could double in size twice over. Now, that, isn't, that isn't just going to happen to you. You got to work at it, but but you could easily end up with with two million dollars worth of ownership, and maybe buy more stock. And, and we always quiz our owners because it, it's fun. But you know, we we say, listen, wages, ordinary income, profit distributions, slightly less than ordinary income. Do you realize what the tax rate is on the growth of equity in these models? And and of course, the answer is nothing. As long as you just start building it and holding it, it's all deferred. You add all of that together, Michael, and put that on a spreadsheet and lay it, look that out into the future 10, 15, 20 years. Generation two, generation three, by building on top of an existing model, by layering in multiple layers of tax strategies, and this isn't rocket science. I mean, lawyers have been doing this since the Mayflower came over. You don't end up with a multiple of two. You're in the five, six, sometimes seven times range. It's far more lucrative to build and stay and build on top of an existing model than it is to hang out your shingle and go at it from scratch. So for those advisors who are business owners or nominally business owners, but are, are kind of stuck with with this, you know, they're 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 giving their advisors 20, 30, 50 percent payouts on the revenue they brought in or the revenue they service or some combination of both depends a little on, I find usually on, on which channel it is and a big distinction between did you get the client or are you servicing the client that someone gave to you? But what, I mean, what's the transition plan? Because I'm still imagining like, okay, I get it now. My stock will be even more valuable if I stop paying them the the rev shares, but how do I actually transition that because i'm gonna say like if i go and say hey great news i'm converting your comp from revenue base to salary but you'll also have the privilege of writing me a giant check to buy into this business so you know i'll take away your income but you can also pay me for the privilege i feel like still isn't going to go over very well so how, how do you how do you work through this i mean i get it at least if you were building from scratch and saying hey i'm i'm gonna avoid this trap i'm just we're going to build from the start with the expectation that the advisor will come on board, get salary and bonus and opportunities to buy in and become partners. But, you know, it's it's easier to, unfortunately, it's a lot easier to, to build that way than it is to unhinge an existing structure where the advisors already have revenue-based compensation. Yep. And you would be exactly right. So we call the founder G1, generation one. The second generation, G2, and, and the third, G3. If effectively, G3 are the 20-year-olds coming out of you know Texas Tech with a newly minted CFP. That part's easy. G1, they can turn on a dime. The, the tough segment to change is G2. So, so we have some rules around generation two. One, as people step into the equity circle, Never do that with anything that feels like a pay cut. So so even though we may well take the wrenches and, and start turning the nuts and bolts on the compensation system, the goal can't be a pay cut. That'll never work. So, so you have to turn gently and slowly. And the place you start, a plan. You don't start with the hiring. You don't start with firing. You, you don't start with changing everything. You have to make a plan. You have to lay it out. You have to gather the facts and you have to teach 
and you have to explain and you have to adapt the plan to the people and what they're building and how they built it and how much time they've got. So, so you adapt the plan very carefully. It doesn't have to be an overnight process, but, but let me tell you something we've learned. Equity, the, the question, do you want to be an owner? Will you invest in this business with me and put your heart and your soul and your career into it alongside me? That's easy, relatively speaking. It's, it's harder on G1 than it is G2 and G3. 90% of our, our next generation advisors, when asked that question, say yes. But the, the, the tough part about it in this industry is compensation. And, and the reason compensation is so hard is that we encourage book building instead of business building. We pay non-owners like owners, and then we expect them to give that up and go become a, a minority owner. That's really, really difficult to do. It's not impossible. We do it every day, but but it is challenging. And the sooner you get started and, and the faster you come to grips with, hey, I've always been told that revenue sharing is the only way, it's the right way. The sooner you start challenging that assumption and then doing the math and looking out into the future and wondering why all the best producers you've hired are, have gone across the street and are now your competitors, I think it starts right there with the comp question. It strikes me because I've just, I've watched so many advisors go through this. You know, if, if you're a business owner now, you've probably been at this so, a while, 10 or, 10 or 20 years. And if you've been in for 10 or 20 years, the odds are virtually zero that you actually started out you might have started out as an independent advisor. You certainly didn't start out as an independent business owner. I mean, you 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 started as an independent producer, right? You were you were maybe you were at a broker dealer, maybe you were at an insurance agency, but you started as an independent producer, and, and only later did you go and shift towards a, a business model with recurring revenue, and then find the benefits of recurring revenue and stable recurring revenue with stable overhead lets you create a profit and start getting bigger, and you and and started to build a business. And I, I think the biggest challenge that I still see for so many experienced advisors today is when they then have to start going to the next stage of building a business without even realizing it, they revert to their roots. And their roots were independent. I started out as an independent producer who managed to succeed. So I am going to grow my business in the next generation of advisors by giving them the independent producer opportunities that I wish I had. And, and often I think try to genuinely give good offerings and, and good opportunities, but don't even realize that they, they defined it as I'm going to give them the independent producer opportunity I wish I had. You know, my firm too, took too much out of me. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, give them a better payout, and my firm didn't support me with the right stuff. So I'm going to give them the right support, and 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 they do all of those things, but all they really try to do is reinvent a a better independent producer model, and then eventually they hit the same wall that every independent producer company is hitting today, which is lousy single-digit profit margins and valuations that aren't even one times revenue because the the eventually the model starts to starts to break down and and we just seem to keep doing it to ourselves because when we start asking that question how do you build a business 
we still keep reverting back to, I'm going to build the business the way it worked with the business I first joined, not recognizing that was a bad model in the first place. Michael, you asked earlier about trends we're seeing. And and one of the trends I think that is real clear is that independent advisors have something that's very valuable. As I said earlier, I mean, this this little practice of theirs is the the single biggest asset that they own. And once they have a valuation done, they tend, they tend to start looking at it differently. But but there are two kinds of value, right? I mean, one is okay. What I built is worth one point four million dollars. But the other kind of value, I go to work and I get every day. My clients appreciate me. I I like going there. I enjoy the work that I do, and I certainly enjoy the income and the lifestyle my work affords me. Why would I want to give that up? So, so, so that that's a real common client for us. So people who say, well, you know, I, I'm going to do this until the day I die. I, I don't need any help. Well, but here's what happens. You, you turn 57 or 58 and, and you start taking most of Fridays off. Um, and, and then you stop working on the weekends and, and you don't do the reading and you don't do the marketing. And, and little by little, you know, the three-day weekends all turn into four or five-day weekends and the business starts to slow. Because you basically have one person doing all the peddling. So early 60s, growth rate starts to go down. And then the income starts to go down. That's a real difficult process to reverse. But if we get ahead of it you know, and, and build a stronger foundation and platform, while these owners are still in their early to mid-50s, give us a 10-year runway. And we can bring in generation two and generation three. And, and we can show the group how to work collegially, collaboratively to build something that's good for all of them and, and to allow generation one to begin to slowly throttle back and retire on the job. But, but to be a mentor, to pass along the opportunities they maybe they didn't have to take care of the client's children and grandchildren to build a profitable, valuable business and to have a choice to transfer it inside or outside or to merge it with somebody. In other words, let's build something that's investment worthy, something that's valuable and, and give yourself options. It, it, you know, you don't have to do any one thing, but it sure is nice to have choices, but that takes planning. So I'm curious as well in terms of trends and what you're seeing, since I, I think you get a a unique look at, at kind of the the health of the advisory firm marketplace, since, since you literally run the largest marketplace for advisory firms. So I, I'm curious for your perspective around just the, the supply and demand dynamics, and I guess in essence, the, the, the valuation trends that, that those imply. Because I feel like there, there's a lot of discussion out there right now centering around two related themes. Number one is... That, that age wave of sellers hasn't showed up yet, but it's going to at some point soon here, and that the onslaught of sellers will cause valuations to crash. And then the number two that I often hear is, uh, you know, with DOL fiduciary rolling through, it's going to drive a bunch of advisors out of business and valuations are going to crash. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm hearing lots of concern, at least from from my world of who I talk to, about whether valuations are 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 in real trouble soon or whether the 
supply demand dynamics are are are, are shifting or have shifted or about to shift. So I'm I'm really curious for your perspective on that as someone that just actually sees this data on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. What what you're seeing in terms of supply and demand and valuation trends? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a challenging question. If 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 we list a recurring revenue practice in Scottsdale, Arizona, with seven hundred fifty thousand dollars a year of, of mostly fee based income. We'll, we'll pick up 50 to 75 interested buyers for it in a week. <laughs> 50 to one or more. So, so, so that makes it sound easy, but, but it's not because, I mean, you know, that, that's, like, that's like putting your house up for sale and, and on Saturday morning, 50 people are lined up down the sidewalk. Well, on, on the one hand, you're going to be real busy, but on the other hand, you know that you'll find success. But, but it's different. In, in this industry, for most of our sellers, this is like selling a almost like selling a, a child. I mean, it, it's their baby. They built this thing, and they care about all of the clients. It, it's not just a number. So, so the seller wants to find somebody, someone who will do things the way they did them, perhaps better. But but you have to take care of the clients, and you actually have to care about them. What a seller is doing is they're kind of looking for almost a needle in a haystack. They're looking for the perfect buyer. Who would I trust to manage my money and give me advice if I were on the opposite side of that table? So, so you, you don't need 50 offers. You need one or two or three great offers from near perfect matches. And, and that's the genesis of our system. It wasn't to run values up because of demand. It was to get great matches. Now, let's go down that path just a little further. If you get a great match, then you create this thing called shared risk, shared reward, a balanced transaction. So you need a seller who's going to make sure they stay around after the transaction and shepherd all of their clients and relationships carefully into the offices and the and the waiting arms of the buyer. And that, that has to be done professionally, politely, and diplomatically. You also need a buyer who's going to work incredibly hard at this thing to make sure that they keep... The goal isn't 70 or 80 or 90%. The seller cares about every one of these clients, and they want to see all of them being taken care of. So you need a buyer that's motivated too. How do you do that? You start with a great match, and then you balance the deal terms. How much down? What are the tax structures? What are the penalties if we don't succeed? All of this flows into the valuation perspective. When, when we list a practice for sale, the typical choice of a buyer would be someone who owns a business. If we list a book for sale, they will typically sell to someone who owns a practice. So in other words, bigger buys smaller. But but usually kind of one one step up the line. Practices by books, businesses by practices. Correct. But 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 think about all, all the, the impacts this has on your on the valuation angle. Because if 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 I own a business and I've got four partners and, and I bring thirty to thirty-five percent to the bottom line, I'm going to buy a practice. A, a, a practice owner typically doesn't manage for profitability. That's not the defining goal. They manage for growth. They manage to take care of the clients. 
they manage for take-home pay. Whether it comes out as W-2 or 1099 or profits is irrelevant. So as a business owner, do I penalize the practice owner for not bringing more profits down? Honestly, most of our business owners could care less. They're buying relationships and cash flow. They're going to take those relationships and cash flow and even the key staff members, and they're going to drop them inside the business's infrastructure and systems and, 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 you know, office confines. It's the business's cash flow and profitability that matter, not the sellers. And so is that why at the end of the day, we still see so many firms that are are valued based on, oh, sorry, I should say books and practices to use your terminology. Is that why we still see so many books and practices that are, are typically quoted as a, as a multiple of revenue? Because at the end of the day, the buyer isn't actually buying profits. The buyer is buying revenue and putting the revenue onto their cost structure to generate the profits. Yeah, yeah I, I love that question, but, but, but I'd answer it a little bit differently. I think book builders probably should just go ahead and use a multiple of revenue. It's simple. It's not going to be that wrong. And and I can't expect a book builder, if they're selling something worth $125,000, they're not going to spend $10,000 on a formal discounted cash flow or an appraisal. Why would they? But now shift up to a practice level or, or certainly a business level, practices should never use a multiple of revenue. I mean, other than just for a smell test, a, a practice... I mean, if, if you use a multiple of revenue, here's what I'll, I'll guarantee you. You're going to be wrong by somewhere between about fifty dollars and $100,000. Maybe high, maybe low. But but if you can get a valuation, a market-based valuation for about $1,250, why, why would you not do that? So, so I think it's just a matter of, A, knowing enough to ask the question, and, and B, putting the work in. You know, it's quality in, quality out kind of thing to do the formal valuation. You need a formal valuation if you've got more than about four or $500,000 worth of recurring revenue, and you need it every single time, period. And so the, I'm also curious then, so I know you run a marketplace for advisors. You, you frankly have been successful enough, I think, that you've spawn some competitors out there. So RA match and 3X equity and a couple others that are they're trying to do something similar. And then there's also a world of you know, broker dealers and custodians that have made their own marketplaces as well. And so, you know, gr- granted, I know you you obviously have a little bit of natural bias towards your platform since you built it, but I'm curious for your perspective across the the different platform options that are out there, or even just like, is there a reason to go to one versus the other? Like, I, I know a lot of advisors on any particular broker dealer custodian platform seem to naturally say, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to my custodian or broker dealer's platform solution first because I'm assuming, right or wrong, you tell me that most m- my most likely buyers are ones that are gonna want to be on my platform already because it's easier to transition the clients and 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 hold on to them. So I may as well just go there. Well, so so here, here's our philosophy. Advisors in, in our space are independent. They have choices. So if, if you're looking for, if, if you agree with our philosophy and your number one goal is not highest price, but best match, which tends to get you best price in terms. If you're looking for best match, do you look in a small crowd 
or a big one. Our philosophy is cast the net wide and then be very discriminating in terms of who you keep in that final group of two or three. If you look only intra-BD or intra-custodian, which, which frankly, that's probably where you're going to end up anyway. But but the idea is, let's look for somebody who's bigger, stronger, faster, and who is a great match for my clients. Where they happen to custod- use as a custodian or, or where they have who they choose to use as a BD, I think it's relevant. I think it's important. But I don't think it's job number one. I think best matches job number one. And I think you have to look around all the corners to find best match. Now, if you don't agree with that, then go ahead and just look locally. You might find somebody who's good enough. And and I mean, it always strikes me as well. They're they're because I've seen one or two horror stories coming out of this and and frankly I imagine you you've you've seen even more that either there is a fundamental kind of misalignment of interest for broker dealer and custodial platforms you know as, as the seller you want to get reasonable value and a best match as a broker dealer or a custodian I really only want you to do a deal on the platform because if you do a deal somewhere else, it might be a you might get a great deal and a great match for your clients, but I'm going to lose the assets. So if I'm the BD or the custodian, I really want to push you to be on to do a deal on our platform, regardless of whether it's actually the best match client wise or financially for you. And I, you know, for I mean, I don't want to cast all broker dealers or custodians in a, in a nefarious way. I mean, I, I I have seen more than one deal now where frankly looking from the seller side, I'm like, you got a, you got a really lousy deal out of this. And they're saying, well, you know, my, my platform said it was a great deal and this is what everyone else is getting. And, and to which I said to them, well, then apparently they're giving a crappy deal to everyone else on your, on your platform too. If, if everyone's doing this, cause I'm, I'm looking at the deal terms and saying this is this is not what your your practice would have gone for on the open market. You had a healthier business than this. And, and Michael, earlier you asked me a good question. I, I, I didn't really get to the answer of it. You know uh, about valuations and um, how these things are, are trending and changing. But let, let's connect that question with with what you just said about you know the, the effect of of a, of a broker dealer's closed platform. So in my second book. Buying, selling, and valuing financial practices. I, I was pretty hard on the practice management folks at the BDs, and I, I have some of my best friends are, are the practice management folks. But what the BDs tend to do is job one: they don't want to lose the clients or the assets. You getting best match and you getting highest price as a seller—that's not their job. That's not their mission. That may be yours, but it's not theirs. So, so what they tend to do is they, they want to put a buyer in front of you and see the deal gets done. If they were to start with seller, you have great value. Don't accept a penny less than this. They're working against their own interest. So, so what they tend to do is they like multiples of revenue. They may dress up the multiples in a, you know, in a 12 page form, but it's still just a multiple of revenue. They don't look any further than their their best buyers. In fact, one of the, the terms we coined in our, our second book was predatory buyers. They, 
they, they, they give these buyers yeah, I mean, they, they literally are though. They, they, they give them a two and a half page revenue sharing form. And again, we go right back to that compensation system. If this is what you know and this is what you've been taught, then this is your only solution set when it comes time to get the tools out of the toolbox. So, so, so we see these guys all the time, books and practices. Fill out this form. You can do it and you can do it on your lunch hour and, and they'll, they'll split the revenues 50 50 for four years. So, so you look at that and you go, well, that's a two times multiple. I'm a genius. Well, not exactly. So, so the buyer pays nothing down. The buyer can pay for just what they choose to keep, and and then in a in a predatory sense, they literally just pick pick through the book. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna cherry pick your eight great clients, and I'm just gonna dump all the rest and not call them and not work with them because it's not very good revenue to me, and I don't have to pay you for it. And and, and what we found was were those you know those forms get handed out like candy, and they make their way into the larger practices and even some of the smaller businesses out there. And, and people fill out the form and they say, well, you know what? I don't want to sell my business using that form. But if if I get hit by the bus, I needed something better than nothing. So so I filled that form out. And they, they didn't take the time to read that it said this form is triggered on death, disability, or retirement. So they effectively took their practice off the market. They're not going to get a two times multiple. Our experience is they get about 60 to 70 cents on the dollar all at ordinary income taxes, and the bottom half of their client base will be left to go find somebody on their own. That's a lousy deal, Michael. And and, and when the BDs say, well, that's better than nothing, I'm sorry, that's a pretty low hurdle. And, and we can and we should do better. Well, you've got a platform to give them a, a better than nothing alternative. Like the, the option wasn't, you know, that deal or nothing in the first place. The option was that deal or Granted, a little bit of work that you have to do as the business owner to go through a formal valuation process or lift it, list an open marketplace, but, the, but there are other alternatives. There, there sure are. And that's, that's why we wrote both of our books. We just said, you know what? If you're a business owner and, and you agree this is your single largest, most valuable asset, spend a couple weekends, read about how to build something that's sustainable. And if that's not for you, then read about how to transition it professionally and responsibly to the best situated buyer and do a good job doing that. But but do one or do the other. Don't just let it die. That's the worst thing you could do. Yeah. And we'll make sure we have a link to both of your books in the in the show notes as well. So for those who are listening, this is this is episode eight. So go to kitsis.com slash eight and you can get a copy of the Show notes, including uh, uh, links out for FP Transitions and and both of David's books, uh, both of which I've read and and really do highly recommend. So, David, as we get to the end of the podcast here, like I'm I'm curious, you've seen lots of different financial advisors that are are successful across, frankly, many different business stages, right? As as we said. Successful books look different than successful practices, which look different than successful businesses. And I, I think there's even some self-selection that happens about who chooses which of those lines based on their own inclinations. So I'm curious, from your own perspective, it's someone that's built a business with 30-something employees. Like, w- What does success mean to you? Well, that may be the toughest question you've asked all day. I remember... When about 1995, I opened up my first 
little law practice and it was, it was pretty much just me. And, and, and about 5.30 a.m. on Monday morning, I couldn't wait to get up and go into work. I was excited, partly scared, but, but very, very excited. You know, I, I owned it. I was building it. And, and whatever it would become, whatever may, maybe it didn't become, that was on me. I, I've never, I always hoped that I would never lose that feeling. And, and, I, and I have to think that a lot of the folks we talk to who say, you know, I, I, I can't sell. I could never sell. I'll, I'll die at my desk. They love what they do every day. And, and, and to me, that's, that's success. You have to love what you do every day or you shouldn't be doing it. And I have a lot of passion for what I do. And you can probably hear that coming through the phone. But if you love what you do, then you work at it. It will evolve. You will get better at it. You, you will bring people good solutions. And, and it's fun. It's not work at all. And I guess alternatively, if you, if you hit the wall on the other end where it's, where it's not fun anymore, there are options for succession or selling. Absolutely. I, I truly believe that. On that note, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wrap us up. Thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, it's always a pleasure. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.